Thanks, Kim. Thank you. Hi, everybody. Good morning. Um, this is my first time at Mariner's Mission Viejo. You know, I'm usually over at the, uh, the Irvine campus, and so Pastor Jeff and Pastor Doug and uh, one of the elders of your church is a good friend of mine, Phil Deal. They, they took me to lunch and sat me down. And, uh, well, I'm here. It's the uh, equivalent of a pastoral arm bar, right? I, I, I tapped out. No, I'm, I'm, I'm really thankful to be here. And, and when, you, uh, when you teach at other churches, you're always uh, looking for some kind of connection that, that brings you a little bit closer, which is what I just did, you know, that Pastor Jeff is a friend of mine, Pastor Doug, and, and uh, a lot of this church family. Uh, I've been in town for a long time and, and know a lot of the people that come to church here. And, uh, but, you know, when you make a left turn on Medical Center Drive... It's really good that you're not going there for, like, a procedure or to visit the emergency room or, uh, or to visit a friend that, that, that something's happened, you know. It, but the weird thing about making that left turn this morning is that it, it just created all these, these flashbacks. And, and the main one was the biggest, one of the biggest spiritual lessons I had ever learned in my life, which was, and my wife hates it when I tell this story. So for all you moms out there, I apologize. Uh, but my son found a bottle of orange Motrin on the counter and thought it was, I don't know, lick a maid or something. And uh, he downed a bottle of Motrin. And uh, I got the call at work that uh, my son was on his way to the ER at Mission. And, and, uh, and so I, I drove very fast from work and I got in there and I bust into the emergency room, you know, and I, I make that turn through those double doors and I pull back the curtain and there's my guy, all right? He's like four. And he is strapped in heavy Velcro straps, and he's on a backboard, and they have him turned sideways, and there's a nasogastric tube going down his mouth, his nose, and there's blood coming out, and, and mommy's there right behind him saying, it's okay, it's okay, and grandma and grandpa are there, and, and, you know, and here I come, I come riding in, and my son, and you dads know what this is like, right? You, you, your kids look at you like, aren't you going to do something? And uh, I remember my son, it looked like one of those cartoons where, you know, the, the head's getting redder and redder and it's about to blow off because he was so terrified and he was so frightened at what was happening to him and he could not control what was going on. So you walk in there and you're just the heart of a father. You're just like, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give this guy relief. But then in the, the next nanosecond, it's like, but I can't do that. Because there's something going on inside of, uh, of him that needs to be addressed. And so the best thing I could do was just try to relax him, right? So I, I, I'm there, I walk in, we, we lock eyes, it's this, this whole locking on. And I look at him and I, I stretch out my hand like a Jedi, you know. And I was like, Ryan, your dad's here. It's going to be all right. No help whatsoever. It was, it was, it wasn't a, it wasn't a relief. But then I, he's looking at me and his face is still red and he's shaking. And I stepped a little bit closer and I said, Ryan, look at me. Your dad's here. You're going to be okay. And I could see him doing the math in his head. Like, can I believe him? Can I trust him? And I saw kind of his face go from like bright red to maybe a mauve color or something. And, uh, and then I, I stepped a little bit closer and I said, Ryan. I said, your dad's here. It's, it's going to be okay. And, and then the next moment was just a miracle. So here you got a four-year-old, terrified, 
heavy Velcro straps. They're pumping charcoal down his nasal gastric tube into his stomach to absorb all the toxic stuff that's in there. And he does this. And all of a sudden, his face is relaxed and calm in the middle of what is, it has to be, a very, very terrifying moment. And the reason I share that story is that, you know, it wasn't that I really did anything. It was just the presence of his father and the promise of his father that in the midst of something he could not control, that it was going to be all right. And I was there in the midst of that. And somehow he trusted me, trusted my presence and my promise. And, and you know, as we come to, to church, my prayer for you this morning was, as God was talking to me, was that um, this morning you might have come through the door and, and there are things that are happening in your life that um, are uncomfortable or maybe they're uncontrollable or maybe they're creating some kind of anxiety. But can I tell you that your dad's here, your father's here, and he's just saying to us all this morning that you're going to be okay. You, you came to the right place. And so that was my prayer for you, that God would somehow speak the same hope and the same peace that a father or a mother can speak into a child at a moment when something's going on and, and that, that they can surrender in the midst supernaturally to something that's happening and that, that, it, that you can latch on to that promise uh, this morning. So that's, my, that's kind of my, what I was thinking this morning as I was driving in, not just uh, you know, the church or my connection with, with mariners, but just... I'm like, Lord, what, what was it that really impacted me kind of being over around this area? And that was it, because I think that's what God's asking of us all this morning, is that, you know, life is unpredictable, it's uncontrollable, parts of it make us feel uncomfortable, and to be able to have peace and hope in the midst of the normal, everyday things that bring stress and pressure because of the presence and promise of God the Father through Jesus the Son. Can I get an Amen. Okay, that's why we're all here. Um, all right, so let's just kind of, that's, that's kind of my, my introductory comments, but big week for the USA, okay? Big week for the USA coming up this week. We have the USA versus Belt, my soccer friends. Um, yeah, we have the, the USA, wouldn't, wouldn't the 4th of July be super sweet if the USA advanced out of the knockout round to the group of eight? I mean, it'd be great. So you have all of this, like you're watching, and there's just all this nationalism. And, uh, and then you have the 4th of July uh, coming up. you got everybody kind of wearing the red, white, and blue, wearing the flag. And there's this whole thing about being an American and honoring America. And we're going we're gonna to be loaded with that. I just, I just hope that we can go into 4th of July with a win over the Red Devils of Belgium. Okay, That's their nickname. All right? But... Um, you know, that's, that's kind of going to be our theme this morning, is the whole theme of honor. Fourth of July is coming up. It's on, it's on Friday. And I just want to ask you a question, just to start off. What comes into your mind when you think of the word honor? Okay, don't say it out loud. But when you think of honor, what comes into your mind? See, for me, it's really easy. Okay, it's when the national anthem is sung. And the reason why when the national anthem is sung, and there's nothing that gives me the goosebumps more that's a trigger for me than when the national anthem is sung, because my mind drifts back to World War II, the story of my own inception, which starts with a scared 16-year-old little girl 
in a prison camp on the island of Guam. And for three years, wondering, hoping, praying, carrying an American flag inside her shirt, praying for the United States to come and liberate her from a prison. And then the whole story as it unfolds, and if you know anything about history, you know the Pacific Theater and the Marines land on the island of Guam and Saipan and Palau. And 2,000 Marines shed blood so that my mother can be free and live. And so when I hear the national anthem, it's just not one of those things of where, oh, this is a nice song, let's get to the game. I literally, I'm pondering, I'm reflecting, there's deep, deep feelings. I mean, my mom was such a patriot. She was so grateful for her freedom. She, was, she sent my son when he was born a constitution of the United States. That's how she was in love with the United States of America. Why? Because she was liberated. And you can you imagine, you know, being a scared uh, 16-year-old girl when she was 17, she was the first Miss Guam, went to the Un- Miss Universe pageant. Okay? You know, met, met my dad. Um, met my dad. He was an officer in the, in the Seabees, in the Navy. And, and after that, they proceeded to have seven kids. And we lived in Japan. And we lived in Virginia. And, and so I lived the life of kind of a Navy brat. Now... You can take down that picture, thanks. Um, but, you know, when I'm listening to the National Anthem, this is all flooding into my, ma- my mind. It's like, let's honor America. I have a, a background that really kind of lends itself to that. But at the same time, I'm watching other people as the National Anthem is sung. And, you know, they're doing these. And they're, they're, they're not taking off their hats. They're busy about their business. Maybe they're doing something else. And I can feel inside of me a real tangible feeling that, that, that the only label I can give it is, is anger. It's like, okay, what's going on here that we can't just honor a moment just in a second? And of course, you, now that you know a little bit about my story, you know why I feel the way I do. But it's in moments like that that I can't help but feel that we're kind of living in a little bit of a self-absorbed culture that's lost its sense of its ability to honor others, honor a moment. I kind of go down that path in my brain where, gosh, self-absorption, social media, you know, cynicism and mistrust toward other people, you know, in politics, between men and women, you know, between black and white, between rich and poor, and the whole media frenzy out there, and we can no longer disagree honestly without labeling and assassinating, you know, each other. I, I start thinking about the culture and and, and being a men's guy and a father guy and a, and a men's culture guy, seeing young men being trained in this culture of dishonor and, and how, how there's, there's, there's great you know, waves of dishonoring of women. And then I think, gosh, that hurts our women and our wives. And, and then that creates cynicism and mistrust among women when it comes to men. And I, I start thinking, gosh, you know, what's going on? And then the, the worst of all, I, I think of Christians who feel somehow called by God to, to, to criticize or dishonor or disrespect or diminish members of their own spiritual family. And, and now I'm really on a, on a slippery slope, but my point is this, is that the bottom line is that the, is that the dishonor culture has, you can't help it, it has infected us. It does infect us. We're in it. We're in this massive pool of media, and there's a lot of dark trends going on. But here's the thing, and now I'm going to make a transition, because if you came to church and you walked out with just that, I'd be really depressed and headed for some Zoloft. 
Okay, but that's not where we're going to say when something's dark, when there's a dark trend or in in societies and in communities and in people's relationships and in marriages and families and friendship. It doesn't matter whether you're in high school or whether you're a son or a daughter or married or single. We're all in the context of relationships. And when you're in a in kind of a public culture of dishonor and there's the threat of you getting, um, you know, infected. The beautiful thing about a dark trend is that a new trend is easily seen against the backdrop of a dark trend. I mean, I'm thinking about your serve weekend. What is the matter with you people? You know, that's a trend of light against a dark culture where people are self-absorbed and are only thinking about themselves, where others aren't being honored, where needs aren't being met. And so Mariner's Mission Viejo is, is, is a light. I mean, the Bible even says in Philippians 2.15, it's not on the screen, but it says that we, the followers of Jesus, are like stars shining in the universe against the dark backdrop of space. And so that is really where I want to go now, is where I see a people. I see a counterculture, and they're called followers of Jesus, who are supposed to be lights against the dark, showing another way, and that's us as the body of Christ, it's Mariner's Mission Viejo, as a church family, that that's our our commission. I also see a Jesus in the Gospels who modeled this counterculture of honoring people, especially those who have been labeled or assigned dishonor. You know, in the first century, the mentality, the broken male mentality of the first century was, thank God I'm not a woman, thank God I'm not a kid, thank God I'm not a Gentile. That is the culture that Jesus walked into. But what do you see Jesus, the man of justice, Jesus, the man who honored everyone, uh, do? You see him uh, honoring and defending women. You see him saying, let the kids come. Let them come, and he, he invited them, and then he blessed them, you know. And then you see him telling parables about the Good Samaritan and, and breaking all the rules when compassion or God's word demands that there be given honor. He touched the ethnically unacceptable, the morally unacceptable, okay, the physically unacceptable, the gender unacceptable, the racially unacceptable. And so we see it in Jesus, this trend. In fact, I see such a mandate and modeling in God's word through the life of Christ, of honoring others, you can unequivocally say there is no such thing as claiming to be a follower of Jesus and a lover of God, and also at the same time, someone who habitually dishonors others, whether you're a husband, whether you're a wife, whether you're young, old, man, woman, single, Whoever you are, if you love Jesus, we are to give honor to other people. In fact, I think we would all agree that honor is the secret at a ground level to to healthy relationships. So in our short time, what we want to do is explore this theme, all right, of honor, all right? It's going to be a big emphasis uh, this week, but really what we want to do is we want to get God's mind on honor, and then we want to see how you and I as followers of Jesus, can develop a spirit of honor within ourselves and in our relationships and in our interactions with other people. Because beyond the larger trend of culture is the more personal reality. And it's this. Look up here. That if I don't do relationships right, I don't do 
life right. And the secret to healthy relationships is when other people in your life feel value and they feel worth and they feel weight. Can we say those three words? Say value, worth, and weight. See, that's when someone receives honor from another person. You're you're communicating a sense of you have value, you have honor, you have worth, you have weight. And that's the life that we're called to as followers of Jesus. In fact, in the Bible, in Romans chapter 12, verse 10, it's almost supposed to be kind of a friendly competition among believers on the whole topic of honor. So let's read Romans 12, 10 together. Outdo one another in giving, in giving honor. Outdo one another in, in communicating through your words and your ways, your beliefs and your behaviors, that other people have value and have worth and have weight. And so this morning, you've got to ask yourself, do those close to me, and this, is, this gets down to me, it gets down to you, it's a personal level, do those closest to me, are those I come in contact family members, spouses, children, do they sense through my words, do they sense through my ways that, that they matter, that they have value, that they have meaning? And wouldn't you agree, though, I think being just human, that sometimes it's easy to give honor to other people, and other times it's a little more difficult? Can I get an Amen. Okay, because there's, there's, there's the easy things where you can give honor to someone or something, and it's not a big deal, you know, somebody wins a gold medal. You're just like, you know, someone, you know, wins a Rhodes Scholarship, you know, you're, someone's a valedictorian, you know, it's, it's like you don't even have to think about it, it's almost spontaneous, it's like an eruption, you just have to let it out, simply because they've done something great, or they've achieved something great, but you don't live with the person, it's just you give it, it's easy, they did something worthwhile, something worth, worth value, something that gave a sign of, uh, of achievement, and you, you give honor. That's what I call uh, reactive honor. It's easy. It's like a trigger. Wow, somebody did something great, I give them honor. Now, then there's this other kind of honor. It's not reactive honor. It's proactive honor. Say the word proactive. Okay, so it's proactive honor. And this is uh, where you're in personal contact with someone Someone perhaps a little closer to you, maybe sitting next to you this morning, don't look, okay? And maybe they're not giving you a warm fuzzy. Maybe they're not doing something great. Maybe they're not helping you directly. And you have to take some sort of initiative to make a choice. To honor them with something you think or don't think, something that you do or don't do, something you say or that you don't say. You know, and I want us to, to, to be uh, this morning thinking about the life that God calls us to live as followers of Jesus is a life of proactive honor where we have the power in the midst of others who may not be directly benefiting me, to honor them and build healthy relationships. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to I show you, first off, kind of a picture of God modeling how to honor other people. And I, we find it in Psalm 40, verses 1 through 3. It's a picture of, of God, by his actions, lifting another person up. It's the psalmist, it's David, and he says this. 
I waited patiently for the Lord. He turned to me and heard my cry. He lifted me out of the what? The slimy pit. Out of the mud and mire. And he set my feet on a rock. He gave me a firm place to stand. He put a new song in my mouth. A hymn of praise to our God. And many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. And you see a picture of someone who's helpless. It's like they're in a, emotionally they're in a slimy pit and it doesn't matter if you have a Ford F-250 and you, you have four low. You're not getting out. Okay? He's stuck emotionally. He's stuck psychologically. He's stuck spiritually. This is not a physical circumstance. This is a, a life circumstance that is creating stress and depression and uh, negative feelings. And we see God enter, enter the life of this man as he reaches out to God. And we see him getting lifted up, lifted out of, lifted onto, and lifted into a new place. Say new place. New place. Yeah, he gets lifted into a new place. There's the old place of where he was, which was in the slimy pit. But then it's this picture of getting set on something firm. It's a picture of traction. He set my feet upon a rock. You go from slimy to firm. You get some traction. And again, this is a picture of getting not physical traction, but life traction, emotional traction, hope, peace. You know, so he's not in a physical place. He's in an emotional, psychological, spiritual place. And there are some of you here this morning, I know, in a crowd this size, you feel like David. You feel like this guy. You go... Man, I'm in a slimy pit. I've tried everything. I'm a resourceful person. I know how to get out of stuff. I know how to, how to take care of myself. But you know, and there's a situation that you can't resolve on your own. You're like at a life cul-de-sac. You're just like, okay, I really want that to change. But everything I'm doing can't get that to change. And it's, it's creating a little bit of feelings, you know, on the inside. And it's kind of like a slimy pit that no matter what you do, you can't get out of. You know what? People... In general, just take this to the bank. People are like icebergs. They only show you the tip of their lives. You know where the substance of an iceberg exists? Where does the substance of an iceberg exist? Under the water, right? And it crashes big things. You know, that even the Titanic, the unsinkable Titanic. Life circumstances, life emotions. You know, you ask people, hey, how's it going? What do they usually respond with? Yeah, good. It's all good. Guys are notorious for this. Right? Say, how's it going? Saul Good. Who is this person, Saul Good? You know, because, you know, this is earth, not heaven. And we know that on earth, there's good and bad. It's not like peaks and valleys. It's like train tracks, you know. There's good that's going on in our lives. But there's also things because there are things that are broken. Earth is broken, the Bible says. People are broken. You know, there's inhumanities. There's evil. You know, and there's good and bad going along each other. But you know what? We always want to present our best self, put our best foot forward people say how's it going fine the most abused word in the english language okay or we say oh i'm really busy you know as if busy is a badge of honor you know that it's oh you know i'm really busy i'm doing a lot of stuff i'm you know but we're like icebergs and underneath the waterline is is a person that's built emotionally psychologically and spiritually and we're managing you know these these pressures and our lives and we need lifting up. Can we say lifting up together? Lifting up. People need lifting up. You know, it's kind of like that old saying where behind every face is a drama unfolding. Just count on it. Nine out of ten people, the research says, have something going on in their lives that they would love to get control of. 
that they would love to, to have results. So we have all this walk-around tension and pressure, and we, they need lifting up, but we got to be proactive. And that's what we see God doing. There's a person that's stuck, and they need lifting up, and a person who needs uh, uh, new emotional help and, and power and on the inside. And, 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 and we see the results that happens when a person gets lifted up. There's a new song. There's something that happens on the inside so that on the outside, something new happens. They change. They transform. Put a new song in my heart, a hymn of praise to our God. And many will see and hear and put their trust in the Lord. There's this transformation where in the midst, maybe nothing has changed, but in the midst, God honors this man, David, who's stuck in the slimy pit. And all of a sudden, his circumstances might not have changed, but his spirit has. And he's able to have peace and hope in the midst. And that's what God wants for us today. So we're going to look at three ways to develop a spirit of honor. And the first way that we develop a spirit of honor is to have a right view of myself before God. That's the first, the first step. So let's look at the Bible. And uh, then let's let's talk a little bit about that. Uh, God himself says in the Bible a little bit about it not being about you, but it being about him. In Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24, it says this. This is what the Lord says. Let not the wise boast of their wisdom, or the strong boast of their strength, or the rich boast of their riches. But let the one who boasts boast about this, that they have the understanding to know who? Me. They have the understanding to know God, that I am the Lord who exercises kindness, justice, and righteousness on the earth, for I delight in these things, declares the Lord. And so what's God saying? God's saying, hey, you know what? You might be smart. You might have a degree. You might have graduated from college. You, you might be uh, physically strong, all right? You might be physically together. You might have a big bank account. But guess what? God is infinitely smarter, stronger, owns the universe. And when that's the reality, that no matter how developed or strong or smart or resourceful that you are, that there's God, and when there is God and there is you, you should have a new reference point. That there's creator and that there's created. You see, it means that I am second if I get that. That there's God and that there's me. It means two things. It means I am second and I am accountable. Can we say those two things? I am second and I am accountable. Right. I am second and accountable. And when I get that, it changes the way, listen, it changes the way I approach my life and the way I approach my relationships. Okay? There's, there's no getting all high and mighty when there's the almighty. All right? Knowing that I'm second and I am accountable. You know, that, that, that he created me and that, and that one day I'm, I'm going to account for myself and my life. That, that changes the way I approach you. It changes the way I approach my wife. It changes the way I deal with my kids. It, it changes the way I think about my boss. It, it changes the way I look at the needs in my community. The knowing that there's God and I'm second and, and I'm accountable. Now, what does God know? You see, if, if he's the creator and we're created, what does he know that makes us want to put ourselves in relationship with him? And, and, and just one chapter over, the exact same verses, Jeremiah 10, 23 and 24, it says this. It's a God's man. His name's Jeremiah. And he says this. I know, O Lord, that a man's life is what? 
Not his own. Right. It's not his own. It is not for man to direct his steps. Correct me, Lord, but only with justice, not in your anger, lest you reduce me to nothing. So what does Jeremiah know and what does it mean in terms of his view of himself and his view of God? Well, he knows that he's created by God, that he's created for God, and that he's going to God. Say this with me. I am created by God. I am created for God. And I am going to God. When you get that, it changes everything. You talk about a game changer. Serve Weekend was a game changer. That understanding right there, I am created by God, I am created for God, and I am going to God, that is a game changer. Not only are you second, not only are you accountable, but God wants to direct you. God wants to correct you. God wants to perfect you. God wants to give you the abundant life, as Jesus said, and he wants a partnership and a relationship with you to do it. And that's what Jeremiah knows. He's saying, you show me how to live life. You know what blows my mind is that people who talk about Jesus as, oh, he was a great person. He was a great man. You should read his stuff. You should read the New Testament. You should read the... No, that's not Jesus. Jesus was God incarnate. He was brilliant. And he's the one who shows us how to live life. And he modeled how to live life, how to do relationships, how to treat others, how this relationship with God works, and how your life is designed to work. Why? Because you're created by him and for him, and everyone in this room is going to come face to face with Jesus Christ. Now, what's the goal? All right, If I have a right view, if God is God, and he's creator, and I'm created, and, and I'm created to be directed by him, I'm not supposed to live the self-sufficient life, I'm supposed to live the God-directed life, that he wants to partner with me in life. What is this whole point of having a right view of myself before God? What's the goal of that? My goal is humility. Can we say that word? Humility. Yeah, it's humility. Because humility is to honoring others what pride is to dishonoring others. You need humility. And the quickest way to get humility is to recognize out the box that you're created by God, you're created for God, and you're going to God. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 6, it talks about this whole idea of humility. But then in recognizing there's God and becoming humble because of your recognition of God, there's a benefit for you. Let's read it together. Let's put it up on the screen. Let's read it together. It says this. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. You see, humility is a positional thing. See, is it humble yourselves where? Under God's mighty hand. Okay, there's, there's God, you're him, I'm not. It's a positional thing. But humility is a powerful thing. It's under God's mighty hand. He is where the power is. He has the power to lift you out of your slimy pit. He has the power to give you direction and purpose. He has the knowledge, insight, and wisdom to show you exactly where you are and where you need to be and what you need to know in order for your relationships to thrive. And if your relationships start thriving, you will do life right. Trust me, I'm a pastor. I do funerals. No one talks about at a funeral in connection to the person who is deceased about the size of their bank account, where they went to vacation, or what kind of car they drove. They always talk. If there is something to talk about, they talk about the person in the context of relationships. 
And the secret to healthy relationships is giving value, worth, and weight to those who are connected to you. So that's the first theme. That's the first thing we want to take away. Just have a right view of myself before God. And when I do that, it gives me a, a measure of humility. And humility is to honoring others in my life and family and marriage and friendships and workplace. What pride is to dishonoring people. Okay, let's look at the second theme. All right, how to develop a spirit of honor in our relationships. It's first, have a right view of myself before God. Second, have a right view of, my, uh, right, have a right view of God's love for me. Okay, so there's God, but how does he feel about me? And how does this give me the capacity and ability to honor other people? Well, you know what I love? I love in the New Testament, uh, Jesus' example of honoring people. But I also love how God modeled for us how to be free to honor other people through his love for us. And we see it in Jesus' baptism in Matthew chapter 3. It's a beautiful passage, and I want us to, to see this. And again, the theme is, have a right view of God's love for me. Well, let's look at God's love for Jesus, because he was the most free to honor other people. It says this, As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting on him, and a voice from heaven said, let's say this together, this is my son whom I love, and with him I am well pleased. Okay, what do we see going on there, and what difference does it make in terms of how Jesus treats others, and then you, God's love for you, and how you should be treating others? Well, Jesus has given a few things right there. Now remember, in Matthew chapter 3, it's early on. Not one person healed. Not one person fed. Not one uh, adulteress defended. Not one leper cleansed. Jesus hasn't done anything. And these are the words that he gets, and this is the things he experiences. He experiences a strong moment. He experiences a strong name. He experiences a strong love and a strong blessing. Say these things with me. Strong moment. Strong name, strong love, strong blessing. And God models for us what is meant for us with Jesus. Why? Well, with Jesus getting that strong moment from his father, he gets a strong name, my son, there's a connection. He gets a strong love, an eternal divine love that secures him so that he doesn't need to chase other love or other approval or other acceptance and dishonor people in the process. And he gets a strong blessing from his father, which says, and in him, I am well pleased. Do you think that that created security on the inside of Jesus or fear and insecurity? What do you think? Security. Isn't that what your kids need? They need strong moments with you, dad. They need a strong name. My daughter, my, my son. They need a strong love from you. They need your time. They need your touch. They need your talk. That's how kids receive love. And it secures them on the inside. And they need a strong blessing, that identity that comes from, that only a father can give to his son or daughter. It says, hey, you're mine. And I don't want to diminish the moms. They make the world run. I mean, they, they're the glue of every household. But there is something very special about the blessing of a father upon a son or a daughter that is very securing. 
and it lends itself to strength on the inside. Because when you have the love and acceptance and security on the inside, that means you're not insecure on the inside, which means you're not afraid as you enter relationships. Because when you enter relationships and there's fear, there's always a compulsion to try to prove and to try to chase acceptance and try to get approval. And that's when relationships go south. So let's go back to what this means. I have a right view of God, but if I have a right view of God's love for me, like like Jesus got and received, what does Jesus do? He fearlessly goes against the culture of me to honor other people. Why? Because this dude is a secure man on the inside. How is he made secure? Strong moment, strong love, strong name, strong blessing. He doesn't need to go chase acceptance and approval and in the process dishonor other people or climb the ladder of success and choose himself. He's free and that's what blew people's mind. Now, think about this for a second. If Jesus lives in you, don't you think that that is the same exact witness and way that God wants to work out in your life? That because you're his, because he loves you unconditionally, because you're, you're, you're forgiven, and you have purpose, and you have a home in heaven, and you have a divine, unconquerable, secure love from God that you then would be free then to go honor other people. You don't need to compete with people. You can connect with people. Why? Because you're secure in the love and forgiveness and mercy of God. Amen? That's what he did in my life. You look at my high school yearbook, Lindbergh High School, 1982, it says, Kenny Luck, life of the party. Instead, it should have said, Kenny Luck, the most scared 17-year-old boy looking for approval at the party. Right? And we all know what that means. Right? Because if you don't have a sense of love and security on the inside, you will chase it for the rest of your lives, many times in the most unhealthy ways. But when God's love invaded my life at 17 years of age, that problem was solved. And that's when I began to just know and receive God's love for me. And as I go and receive God's love for me, uh, what happened to me is expressed in Romans 8.37. It says this, No, in all these things we are more than, what? Conquerors through him who... You see, you want your relationships to thrive? You can't give away what you don't possess. But if you possess security in the love of God, you will give away security and honor with those next to you. And it doesn't matter if you're a student or you're in college or you're married or you're single. God's put you in the context of relationships. And what does he want to do in you so that honor can flow through you? He wants you to know that he loves you. In 1 John 4.18, it says this, There is no fear in love, for perfect love drives out fear. Because the one who fears has to do with punishment, but the one who fears is not made perfect in love. You see, when you have the love of God in you, it takes away the fear. All right, last theme, and then we'll wrap it up. So, right view of myself before God, right view of God's love for me. Last is right view of God's desire for me with others. Now we're saying, okay, I know there's, there's God and I'm not him. I know that he loves me and that love will never leave me. And I have the humility and I have the security on the inside, which then makes me free to go love. And now, God, what do you want me to do? In, in Ephesians 4.29, it says this, Don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, 
but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. You know what I love about that verse? It just tells us the very simple basics of how to honor others. You can build up, or you can what? Tear down. And you see, because of God's love for you, and because he's in your life, and you know you're second, and you know that you're accountable, and you know that he loves you, and that love will never leave you, you are free. In 1 Peter 2, 16 through 18, it says, Live as free men, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as servants of God. Show proper respect to who? Everyone. Love the brotherhood of believers. Fear God. Honor the king. And then it talks about the work context in that time. It says, Slaves, submit yourselves to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. That's proactive honor. Even in the midst of people who aren't treating you well, you can still love them. How does it all tie together? In Matthew chapter 10, verse 8, Jesus is talking and he says to us, Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. Let's finish it together. Freely you have received, freely give. You see, freely we receive God's love and honor. And he lifts us out of the slimy pit. And he sends his son to die on a cross. And he forgives us. And he loves us. And he says he'll never leave us. That secures us. Now, freely give that away. The Bible tells us in so many places. These are all the one another verses. But I like this one in Philippians 2. It says this. Do nothing out of selfishness or vain conceit. But in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should not only look to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. You see, one of the biggest needs that people have right next to you, in your family, in your marriage, and in your neighborhood, is to feel value, worth, and weight. Who's called and commissioned to give that to them? You are, if you're a follower of Jesus, beginning in your family, in the relationships that are very close to you. And so what we want to do right now is we want to put our pencils down and we want to take a moment together as a family and just bow before God and ask him to do these things in us. So would you pray with me? Lord, the first thing I recognize in a crowd this size is that it's hard to give honor and love to others when we've never experienced it for ourselves or from someone that we've loved at a deep level but it wasn't returned or is not being returned in this moment. And Lord, it's hard to to honor others and give love to others when we've been dishonored or discounted or just flat out ignored. And there are some people here this morning that feel that way right now. God, thank you for the good news that you sent Jesus to, to solve this whole issue on the inside and how we feel and to give us worth And to give us love. Jesus, you said, greater love has no man than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. Thank you, Jesus, for that kind of sacrificial love that communicates to us that we have value, worth, and weight. And so I want to ask you, everybody here, what have you done with Jesus' love? What are you doing today with that love? What will you do with it in the days to come? And Jesus wants you to recognize it for yourself. He wants you to receive it today. And he wants you to release yourself to it so that you 
can become that humble, secure, transformed person with a new song in their mouth. And if that's you today, all you have to say is this. Just say, Jesus, today I say yes. I say yes to you, and I say yes to your love. And I don't know what it all means, but I recognize you. I recognize your sacrifice for me and for my sin, and I receive you and your plans and purposes in my life. Transform me from the inside out so that I can give honor to others. In Jesus' name, amen.